Within the book of Galatians, we are still in that part of the book where Paul is talking about doctrine. Most of his letters have a very set pattern. He'll begin talking about what we believe, and then uh, toward the end, he starts shifting and then dealing with how do we behave in light of what we believe. We're still in the the doctrinal part, and he's still talking about sonship. Uh, Craig Barnes, uh, who is... is uh, pastor of the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., talked about his family. And he said, when I was a child, my minister father brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger whose parents had died from drug overdose. There was no one to care for Roger, so my folks decided they would raise him as if he were their own. And at first it was quite difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home. It was not a home with addicted parents. Every day, several times a day, he said, I heard my parents saying to Roger things like, no, no, that's not how we behave in this family. No, you don't have to scream or fight or hurt anyone to get what you want. And no, Roger, we respect you, and we expect you to show respect within our family. And in time, Roger began to change. Now, Did Roger make changes in his life so he could be part of our family? No, he was already part of our family, Craig Barnes wrote, because of the grace my father showed him. Now, he raised the issue, did he have chores? Did he have things to do as part of the family? Yes, of course, but not to stay in the family. He was already part of the family. And the changes that started coming into Roger's life were noticeable and real, and they weren't done so I can be part of or stay in. They were done out of gratitude. When he realized this amazing love that had been given him, he wanted to please his father, his mother. He wanted to be part of that family. And then he brings it home and he says, do you have a lot to do in the kingdom of God? Of course you do. The Spirit of God has brought you into the family of God. You've been adopted. Certainly there's a lot to be done, but not in order to become part of the family. That happens because of the grace of God. And the changes that come in your life aren't you working real hard to make sure your father keeps loving you. There's a works inspired by the Spirit of God that come from your gratitude and love, knowing that God has made me his own. Now that's going to get a little bit fleshed out for us today. You see, in our morning's text, we can begin to understand what it means to be adopted into the family of God. What it means to be part. And so we're going to take a look today at Galatians 4, 1 through 11. I'm asking you to stand. And as always, I'm asking you listen with both ears and your heart and understand what God is saying to us today. Now, he's, Paul's wrapped up one part of the discussion again, and he now explains. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. They are subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, 
We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive sonship, adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In today's text, Paul continued the analogy of God's children being those who have been saved by grace through faith. He's restating that image. Now, when Paul repeats something, it's always, you really need to pay attention. He hasn't even left the discussion, and he's starting it up again. This shows us how important the idea of us being children of the living God truly is in our faith. And when we look at this text, we need to understand what this passage of Scripture is telling us is that our status has changed. We haven't been moved from slaves to God's sons. We are now part of the children of God, the family of God, and we are no longer slaves. So let's take a look at the text and see what Paul's having to say so that we can make sense of this all and at the end of the day, make some pretty important decisions. First of all, there was a time we were like minor ch- Roman children. And I should have the word Roman up there to really emphasize. There was a time we were like Roman minor children. Now, why is it important to say Rome? Well, when you look at what Paul's saying, he's talking to people who are in the Roman culture, part of the empire, And he's going to use an image that is particularly meaningful to them. So Paul pointed to minor children in Roman society to point to life without Christ. Do you want to know what you were before you came to Christ? You were minor children. Now, here's why it's so important for this to be seen as the Roman children. In the Roman world, a minor child and a slave both lacked the capacity for freedom. They had no freedom to act on their own. As far as the law was concerned, they were under the master of the house, the father of the house. And a minor child had not yet reached the age where he was able to fulfill the terms of his father's will. By birthright, He owned the whole thing, but he had no access to it. He had no right to it. 
And he was kept in subservience to the father, just like the slaves would be in that household. From the moment he was born to the time he finally reaches adulthood, he's under the, the care of guardians and stewards, those who had charge pretty much over his whole life. And he had to obey the slaves his father owned and set over him. Now, Roman law had, a, if you would, a, a time for becoming a free agent when you would finally be free. And generally speaking, that was at the age of 14. But a father didn't have to agree with that. A father could say, you're my minor child until I tell you so, differently. Now, when a father finally says, you're a man, the son would put on a ceremonial toga and would be acknowledged by that father as the full and legal heir. So Paul says, that's what you were like, and he makes it clear here. Before you became a Christian, before you received salvation, you were enslaved, just like that son who was under the power of somebody else. You were under the power of elemental spiritual forces. Now, some people believe that Paul was talking about the Mosaic Law. And at least that's carried in thought. Remember he said the law enslaves us? But the Galatians were primarily Gentile, if not completely Gentile. And they were enslaved, when you look at verse 9, they were enslaved under their old religions, trying to earn their way to whatever they thought was God and heaven. The reality, it doesn't matter how you tried to achieve righteousness by your works, there was a time you were a slave without any rights, waiting. And this is where we become uncomfortable. Because for us, like children with no power, we were slaves with no ability to free ourselves. This was our reality before Christ. Didn't matter how many resolutions, how many vows, how many contracts we signed to become good people. We were under the influence of a world marked by sin. Now, you might have a degree of morality. I'm not saying that people without Christ cannot be quote-unquote good people. If you're raised with an idea of right and wrong, then you have some sense of morality. But if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you realize that knowing what right and wrong, what right is, and doing the right thing every single time are very different truths, every hand in this place should go up. Just because we know, quote-unquote, right and wrong, all the willpower in the world cannot break the chains of human enslavement. And I need you to really, really hear me. We need to understand this. Now, for all of you who are in your teen years, I apologize. 
but I was there once too. Years ago, I read a report that said the human brain is not fully developed into the mid-20s or even into the 30s. Now, according to the University of Rochester Medical Center, recent research has found that adult adult and teen brains work differently. Adults think with the prefrontal cortex, the brain's rational part. This is the part of your brain that lets you respond to the situations with good judgment. An awareness that what I'm doing right now has long-term consequences. That's the way the adult brain works. The teen brain is focused on the amygdala, uh, and we've talked about this particular part of the brain before. The amygdala is the emotional seat of the brain. I sometimes heard it recall, referred to as the lizard part of your brain. Uh, that part of your brain that is just about existence, just about feeling, just about emotion. When you get angry and you start saying things you don't normally say, that's the part of your brain that's working. And teens process primarily from that part of the brain. So the connection between the emotional part of the brain And the decision-making part of the brain that says, maybe that's not a good idea, is not fully developed in teenagers or children. That's why when teens have an overwhelming emotional input, they can't explain later what they were thinking. The report says they weren't thinking as much as feeling. Having said that, I am now going to indict the whole human race. The human heart's ability to live according to the ways of the Lord is never fully developed on our own. We can hope and pray our children will grow and we can give them good advice and they can follow and one day they'll be thinking. We will never be able to be righteous on our own. And this is where I need you to hear me because we don't always seem to get this. We cannot expect lost people to behave like saved people. We can't. We can't look at the world and say, what's the matter with you? We know what's the matter with the world. It's fallen. And the vast majority of people in the world seem to be completely without any care of following God. It's lost people can't understand or behave. And folks, let's be honest, it's not always easy for us who know the Lord. Remind you of Paul's struggles and his own testimony in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. 
This I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there are a number of commentators who will say, well, Paul was talking about his life before Christ. I don't believe that. He's using the present tense throughout this whole discussion. If you want to know the key, sometime this week, write down the Romans 7, 15 through 25. Read it carefully. And I, wa- I didn't tell you to do this while I was reading because I wanted you to hear it. Notice how many times the pronouns I or my are used. And when you do that, you will see Paul was saying, I'm trying really hard to do what's right, and I can't do it. Because Paul is talking about trying to do it within his own power. And in frustration, he finally says, so who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God in Christ. And then in Romans 8, 1, the very first thing he says, there's no, now no condemnation to those who are belonging to the Father, those who are in the kingdom. Those who are lost are completely enslaved and need a fundamental change of heart. And that's what we were before we came to Christ. We needed a heart changed. And we couldn't change it. And there are a lot of people out there right now who need a new heart, and we are the ones who can tell them how to get it. So let's remember that. Without Christ, we have no power. So let us recognize that our ability to break free from slavery is in the hands of the Father. The fundamental heart change that is necessary for human beings is capable of being done only by God himself. And the scripture wants us to know this so carefully that over and over again, when you start looking at subjects about salvation, passages of scripture, you'll see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together. And you see that here. Even as believers, we still need God to move. So, before you knew Christ, you were a slave. He said it before, but now he's saying even his sons. And remember, the I, last week I shared you that the idea of son of God could involve everyone who is part of creation. But you're not in the family of the kingdom of God. So, Paul said, when the father says it's okay, you're now an adult. When his time has passed. So our next truth. Under the Father's hand, the time of our freedom has become real. And this is one of the most exciting statements in Scripture, folks. Under Roman law, the Father determined ultimately when his son was an adult. And now Paul is saying, 
that when the time was right, the Father moved to set us free. I've heard a lot of people try to explain what it meant when it says, when the fullness of time has come, when it was right time, we ultimately have no complete answer for that, for it was the Father who decided who was the right time. And our text is the only place in Paul's writings that he specifically mentions the birth of our Savior. And please note, this is not in a systematic theological treatment of the virgin birth. I have no problem believing Paul understood and believed that. But when he says, when the time was right, the son was born to a woman under the law, Paul was telling us why. Why did he come when the time was right? To redeem us. To redeem. To redeem those under the law. And the emphasis in its context is not so he could redeem you so you could get to go to heaven. In context, he came to redeem us who were under the law to break the curse of the law so that we could just become sons and daughters of God. He redeemed us so we could enter into God's family is the emphasis here. Romans 8.3, we are told that in his death, Jesus Christ condemned sin. And it's that redemption that makes it possible for us to be adopted into the family. In our scripture reading, we read one passage in Hosea, looking back to the moment of time when God delivered Israel out of bondage from Egypt. There are a lot of scholars who say that was the moment God adopted Israel as his son. And Paul, I'm sure, would have known those passages. But his focus here is primarily on contemporary practice. Now, don't get weirded out by that that Paul may not have a specific passage of Scripture in mind. Remember, Paul used contemporary issues, terminology, often. He talked, remember, we talked about the farmer and the athlete last week. He's doing the same thing here. Paul knows his audience, and so he brings up the idea of adoption. And in Paul's day, adoption was becoming more and more important in Roman society. In fact, from about the late first century into the mid-second century and beyond, there were Roman emperors who actually adopted men who were not in their bloodline with the idea, that's going to be the one who succeeds me. Because the emperor knew, my son can't do this. So I'm going to get one who can. And so when a child was adopted, if he was underage the father, the birth father, would sell, pretend, sell the right of the, the all power that a father held to the new adopted father. And from that point on, he was completely, legally, that man's child with all of the benefits. If he were an adult, and there were adults who were adopted, sometimes a slave made such an impact on a, a, an owner that he said, I want you to be my child. If he was of age, then there would be a civil ceremony, including government officials. 
And they would then, at that point, be their child. By the way, the Romans said you had to have seven witnesses to an adoption. Just in case parts of the family say, wait a minute, they don't deserve. Seven individuals could say everything was done right, they're ours. In Romans 8, You heard in the song and you heard when we read. There are two witnesses to our adoption. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are now the children of God. Through the redeeming work of the Son, Paul says, you have been adopted. And to show them how certain this is, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Paul's including himself now. I needed this just like you. The Spirit cries out from us, allowing us to cry out, Abba, Father. I've mentioned that Aramaic word before, Abba. It was a term of deep intimacy. Um, Some people believe it may have come from a child's first attempts to identify the child with just the father with what just murmurings of a child. We don't know. But it was intimate. And it was close. The, uh, the word a loving child would have for their father. And so for us, through the Son and the Spirit, God has become Abba, Father to us. And this is who we really are, people. We really are children of God. We could not earn that privilege ourselves. So the Father brings the Son to redeem us and sends the Spirit to live within us so that we can rightfully know that we are children of God. We can express and enjoy an intimate relationship with God. I never use the word daddy for God in corporate prayer. Now, there's a reason. This is a very intimate term for me. All of my life, I called my dad either daddy or pops. And those were words of deep respect and close love. I know. There were times I wasn't sure, but I know my dad loved me. And he know I loved him. And this is where I don't want anyone to misconstrue. If I start praying out public, Daddy, bless us. I don't want anyone to think I'm crossing a, a line of inappropriateness. How dare he do that? How presumptuous he does that. Folks, I do it Privately, because that's what Abba means. It's not a formal term for father. It's intimate, and it's real, and it's powerful. Whatever term you choose to use to address God as father, maybe you just can't bring yourself to say daddy. That's fine. But do feel free to use the word Abba. And know 
that God is the one who opened the door to that kind of intimacy. So let us lovingly embrace the intimate relationship we can have with God. It's kind of hard for me to contain myself when I start talking about this stuff. Because I want to start shouting hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord. We can rejoice, we can exult, we can shower the Lord with all of our love, with all of the deep intimacy of our love. He is our Abba Father, and his heart goes out to us. For all those he has redeemed his son, he loves us, and he calls us, come to me. Share your burdens with me. Come to me and be with me. I want you here. So never draw. be afraid to draw close to God. I once read a work by a gentleman by the name of Judson Cornwall. He was Assemblies of God, and he talked about a man in his church who just would not warm up. And Cornwall asked, why don't you get involved? Why aren't you more vocal with your love and your praise? And he said, I'm kind of a shy, withdrawn guy. And I just don't, I don't believe in making all that noise. So Cornwall bought him a ticket to the local college football game. They had not won a game in years. They had not scored a touchdown in months. And then the course, and it happened to be homecoming, the course of the game, they scored a touchdown, and the crowd went crazy. And the guy is standing up shouting with everybody else, screaming and shouting his head off. And he looks at Cornwall, who is seated on the bench with his hands folded, quietly watching. What's the matter with you? Don't you understand what happened? And he said, I'm a shy, withdrawn kind of guy. And I don't believe in showing all that noise and emotion. He said it wasn't long before this guy finally broke down and knew it's okay for me to love God and to show it. Now, as we look at those two truths, we were like slave, minor children with no power, no authority to our name. Then God said, the time is right. You are now my children. As we look at that, we need to hear the words of Paul. Only in 1 Corinthians. And when he wrote these words, he's writing to a very immature group of people. It's found in the great love chapter, chapter 13, verse 11. And Paul is making a point. And he says, when I was a child, I talked as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. At the risk of offending, now is the time to put the things of childhood away. It is time we grow up. It's time we grow up. And I will use, use this as an invitation to tonight's discipleship class when we're talk, we'll be talking about Christian maturity. 
and what it means to be growing up in the Lord. It's time to put away the childish things. When you see Paul, he seemed amazed that the Galatians were willing to go back from full sonship into the realm of slavery. He is so shocked. There's nothing less than shock. He can't believe you are thinking about returning to a time when you had no power. You're thinking about returning to an idea that could never have worked. And he gives them an example. Apparently, under the Judaizers, they were starting to keep certain elements of the law. They had not yet become circumcised. But they were observing. You're observing special days. Sabbaths. Now, I know that the Ten Commandments says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But under that, the, the, the Jewish people developed, the, particularly the rabbis, such strict laws about what keeping the Sabbath meant that virtually no one could keep it. Folks, we don't observe the Sabbath per se within the Christian church or most of us. We would be doing this yesterday if we did. We observe the Lord's day. The day was resurrected. Now, there are elements of the Sabbath that are still part of it. We are, this is to be a time of worship, a time of seeking our God. But they're keeping the Sabbath because they think they have to in order to get saved. Special months, the new moon. Special seasons, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacle. Now, I enjoy going through Passover Seder and looking how it looks forward to what Jesus did. But again, they're not, apparently they're not doing this so they can say this is what God did with Israel and it shows us a picture of what God has done in us. They're still trying. They're going backward to the law. They're starting to accept what the Judaizers are telling them. You're not really Christian. Then he says one of the most painful things in all of Paul's writings. I'm worried about you. And I'm afraid I've wasted all of my time. I'm afraid that everything I share with you has been in vain. And I can tell you, folks, it's a gut-wrenching feeling for anyone who's trying to help someone else walk with the Lord and become what they're supposed to be. When you watch them essentially say, that's, I'm, so, I'm so glad you're concerned about me, and I thank you for that, but I'm going to do my own thing anyway. It hurts. Deeply. Returning to the life of bondage of spiritual slavery slavery makes no sense. And when we start making rules and regulations and start checking off the list, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, okay, God's going to be happy with me.
We're going backwards. And folks, the more and more I get to know people who truly are legalists, the more and more aware I am that their lists are usually man-made about what they think. You want to be holy, you have to look a certain way. You want to be holy, you can't watch a movie, you can't read a book, you can't listen to secular music, you can't, which would even do away with many classical works. You can't grow facial hair. You can't wear makeup. Ladies, if any of you are in pants today, you're in deep trouble. And those rules and regulations we make, this is what is expected. We're moving backward. Now, Paul, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at, Paul tells us that as children of God, we are expected to live godly lives. But it's not through keeping of the law. It's not through working hard. It's not through making a list of what's acceptable and what isn't. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Surrender to the Lord we say we serve. So when we find ourselves gathering our list of what we demand, going beyond even what the Word of God says, we are dangerously close to a group of people the only group of people Jesus ever effectively raises his voice and scolds. And it wasn't the publicans, and it wasn't the sinners, and it wasn't those people who were coming to listen to him because they wanted change. It's the Pharisees. Listen. Matthew 23, 13 and 15. I don't want this said of me. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's what legalism will do. So why would we want to go back to that? Why would we want to start thinking, I've got to earn my way to make God happy, because if I don't, he's going to give me a flat tire. If I don't, he's going to send us into a time of drought. If I don't, bad things will happen to me if I don't keep the rules. Why? Go back and regress to spiritual immaturity when we are already children of God. Saved by grace through faith alone, we will live by grace, through faith alone. So our hearts should yearn. We, we need to let us so live that there's no question that the journey of faith is not in vain. No question that, that we have somehow failed, that we 
that it was a waste of time, that it was a mistake, that we didn't do it. We need to walk in the freedom from law that grace made possible. We need to order our lives by the truth that we are saved by grace through faith alone. We need to trust that God's redemptive work in Christ is all we need to be His children and to live as children. Folks, we need to celebrate. We have moved from slaves to God's sons. And God is the one who makes the difference. A seminary professor was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. One morning they're eating breakfast in a little restaurant, hoping to enjoy a quiet family meal. You know, though, when, when you don't want interruptions, you just want to relax, be with the one you love. You know that feeling. But while they were waiting for their food, they noticed a distinguished-looking man, white hair, everything, moving from table to table, speaking to all the guests. And the pastor, because he just really, he leans over to his wife, I hope he doesn't come by here. And sure enough, he comes to their table. And he asks a question. Where are you folks from? Oklahoma. Great to have you here in Tennessee. He's not going away anytime quickly. What do you do for a living? I teach at a seminary. Oh, so you teach preachers how to be preachers. Well, I've got a really good story for you. And he pulls up the chair and sits down. And the pastor groans a little bit and thinks to himself, great. Folks, and I know this, I know this sentiment. Great. Just what I need, another preacher story. Because they don't always turn out well. The man started and he said, see that mountain over there? He pointed out the restaurant window. Not far from the base of that mountain, there was a baby born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked by the people of this small town, who's your daddy? Whether he was at school, in the grocery store or drugstore, people would come, essentially invading his most intimate privacy. Who's your daddy? He would hide at recess and lunch at school. He would avoid going into stores because he knew eventually somebody would ask this poor, poor boy if he even knew who his daddy was. The man continued, when he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to his church. So the boy would always go in late and slip out early to avoid hearing the question, who's your daddy? But one Sunday, the new preacher said the benediction so fast, he got caught and had to walk out with the rest of the crowd. Just about the time he got to the back of the door, the new preacher, not knowing anything about this child, laid his hand on his shoulder and asked, son, who's your daddy? And the whole church got quiet. They're thinking, now, we're finally going to find out who his daddy is. 
The man continued, the new preacher sensed the situation around him and using discernment that only the Holy Spirit could give, said the following to that scared boy, Wait a minute. I know who you are. I can see the family resemblance now. You are a child of God. With that, he patted the boy on the shoulder. Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. That little boy smiled for the first time in a very long time. And he was never the same again. Whenever anybody would ask him, who's your daddy? He'd just tell him, I'm a child of God. The old man got up from the table and he looked at him and he said, isn't that a great story? The preacher, the professor responded, it really was a great story. And as the old man turned to leave, he said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably would never have amounted to anything. And he walked away. The seminary professor and his wife were stunned, so they called the waitress over. Do you know that man who was just sitting at our table? The waitress grinned. said, of course. Everybody here knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. May we never forget that one point in our lives we were slaves to sin without power. No ability to change ourselves. No ability to fix what's wrong. And then God came. Christ came into our lives in order to save us. The Spirit of God entered into our hearts and now we can say that God is Abba. God's my daddy. We must already rejoice and learn to live as grown children of the King. Living, learning, loving the one who gave all that we could live. Folks, this is our new reality. Christ has saved us. Christ has changed our hearts. And out of that grateful heart, let's refuse. When somebody starts coming up to us with their lists of do's and don'ts and say, this is what you've got to do to fit in, to measure up, let's just remember Christ made me a child of God. The Spirit of God dwells within me. I don't need your list. I want to follow my God. Let's with intent and purpose live fully and freely as the children of God. Grown up, walking in the freedom that God brings. And oh, just wait till you hear Paul talk about With freedom he has come. So let's live in that freedom. This is what he's saying. Again, we will see that God expects us to live godly lives. But it's not because we've got the right list. It's because the Spirit of God dwells within us. And we are his children. 
Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. I know it's hard to, to work through this, and I know the great temptation to look for the list, to try to figure out exactly what I've got to do to make God happy with me. I know that temptation. I have lived as its slave for a long time in my life. And if you struggle with this, if you're still battling with wonder whether you're really deserving to be a child of God or not, understand it's not about what you deserve. It's about the grace that of God that has changed you. So if you struggle with these fears, you face the temptation the Galatians do, I would like to pray for you. Could you just slip up your hand for a moment? Yes, thank you. Thank you. 